Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, 261 Moore Street, where brunch is being served. Um, My guest today on the phone is Winona Howder, who is the Executive Director of Food and Water Watch. She has worked extensively on food, water, energy, and environmental issues at the national, state, and local level. And her book, her brilliant book, Foodopoly, The Battle Over the Future of Food and Farming in America, examines the corporate consolidation and control over our food system and what that means for farmers and consumers. Winona, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. It's great. I really appreciate it. I am so pleased to be here today. (laughs) I think we should do this regularly, but we'll see how it goes. Um, First, I want to compliment you so, so much on Foodopoly, which was just um, breathtaking in its scope and the level of research that you brought to it. It's just, I mean, there is, it's so irrefutable. It is so important. And every man, woman, and child in America who's literate should read it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for that winging endorsement. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Now, Winona, when you start off the book... um, um, which I and I loved this that you kind of you went way back uh, you rolled back time to the Reagan administration which was when antitrust uh, regulations began to be dismantled by government um, so can we talk about how rolling back those antitrust regulations um, played a really key role in creating the consolidation of our food industry can you like sort of parse that out a little bit for people yes absolutely well you know I had the opportunity to interview Michael Perchuk, who was a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission uh, at the time that Ronald Reagan was elected. And he told me the story of how the Reagan administration came into office. This ideologue named James Miller was appointed to the Federal Trade Commission, and he came in basically with the agenda of getting rid of antitrust law. There had been a lot of lobbying to get rid of the rules that uh, make it more difficult for companies to combine and Mm -hmm. to acquire one another. So he came in, he cut the budget, he got rid of whole departments, and he uh, made practices that had been illegal actually legal, things like allowing competitors to merge when in the past uh, this hadn't been uh, allowed. Mm -hmm. And probably most important, he made it, um, he made, he changed the law, he narrowed the law so that it's been much more difficult for the agencies that oversee antitrust violations to do anything about it since that time. So all of those mergers, do you think that was driven by the banking industry primarily? Was that who sort of started that ball rolling, or was it 
you know, manufacturing companies and, and the like that wanted to... I, I think it of, was the financial services industry, but it was also other industries across the board who recognized that they would be more profitable if they were able to get larger. And, you know, I think we all know what's happened when a company gets so large that it's absorbed its main competitors, Mm -hmm. there's less competition, and they have much more, not only market power, but economic power and political power. Yeah, I think that's the scariest part is that they can bring so much money to bear uh, on political figures uh, to you know get what they want. So um, another thing that I've always been curious about, and I thought um, you just touched on it just briefly in Foodopoly, um, but was was the the role of food commodity trading, and I mean like you know trading futures on corn or grains, um, on cattle futures and the like. What what kind of um, role does that play? in helping to sort of consolidate and industrialize the food system? Because I feel like that, that has some impact on world food prices, I know. Well, so- I think that food is not even looked at as food anymore. Mm-hmm. It's looked at as money and as a, uh, a as something that can be traded. And during the, uh, um, the all of the speculation that we saw in 2008, we saw a, a really devastating effect on uh, prices around the world that led to massive famines. So I think this ability to speculate the economic power of the grain traders, companies like Cargill, ConAgra, uh, ADM is immense, and it's having a, a real effect on people's lives, not just here, but in the developing world. And I think it's really remarkable, uh, and not in a good way, that this past week, Cargill's uh, wheat milling partnership, which is called Horizon, announced a proposed merger with ConAgra Mills, mm. joining two of the nation's largest wheat flour milling operations. Wow. And this is on top of two flour mills that Cargill bought earlier this, will, uh, this year, and Cargill's already the world's largest grain trader mm-hmm. and has an enormous amount of impact on the, the world market for uh, this type of co- for commodities. Yeah, I mean, it's scary because when those grain prices go up, then sort of every other price goes up with it. And if these guys can lock up the grain or the flour supplies, that's going to have an impact, I guess. I don't, unfortunately, I'm quite ignorant about how commodity trading works, really. But that's well, you kind know, of my um, sense. This merger is going to increase the stranglehold of these companies on the world food supply. Mm-hmm. And it's both on farmers that raise wheat and other commodities and the consumers that eat. And, it's, and like you just pointed out, eat almost anything. And if you look at this new company that's going to be uh, milling wheat, I think it's a good example of what happens. They want to name it Argent, and it would control a third of the wheat market. And today there are only uh, four firms that mill um, more than half of the wheat in the country. And, you know, there is an economic theory that when you have only four firms that control more than 50% of a market, that you have too much concentration in the market. So if this proposed merger is approved, 
the top four firms, which are this merged company called Argent, uh, Archer Daniels, Midland, uh, the cereal food processors, and Bay State, uh, Bay State Milling, they will mill two-thirds of the flour, and that's, you know, like making the bread in two out of three sandwiches. Wow. And the new Cargill uh, Conagra uh, company, Argent, would mill the flour in one-third of all sandwiches. Oh and God. that's going to mean that farmers will have very few competitors bidding for their wheat, which uh, drives down the price that farmers right. receive. And then uh, it, it's going to mean incri- increased prices for consumers. Yes, and certainly in the developing world uh, where we export wheat, that's going to have a big impact because basically what you're saying, just as, I mean, you're talking about the kind of consolidation in the flour mill, uh, milling business as has happened already in the, in the meat industry where there exactly. are four main packers and they basically control the prices across the board in terms of what farmers are going to get uh, at any given time. And they don't have cattle auctions anymore because of the vertical integration, right? Isn't that what that, issue That's exactly this? right. And, you know, it's, um, it's really scary. And I think the beef industry is a good, example, I really believe that we're approaching the level of concentration in beef where um, where prices are just going up and no none of the benefits are going to consumers or farmers. Mm-hmm. The, the, this concentration with four firms controlling a large percentage of the market, they now control 80% of uh, the beef market. And since that happened, prices have gone up steadily. And I think that this is a part of the proof that the so-called efficiencies that we uh, are supposed to see from this kind of uh, merger um, don't really happen after you get this level of concentration. Yes, I, I would agree with you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us along a little bit because I do want to talk about the, more about the industrialized meat industry. And one of the things that you say in Foodopoly is that the government has been a big part in enabling the rapid growth of an industrialized meat system. And particularly, you mentioned, I mean, your chapter on the hog industry was absolutely fascinating to me. So can we talk a little bit about the hog uh, sort of component of the meat industry? Because you made a really powerful case for how sort of these antitrust regulations and a variety other mechanisms that the government introduced um, led to this incredibly rapid growth of yes, consolidated well, uh, pig farming. Yes. Well, what we've seen is that um, between 1995 and 2005, there was an enormous growth in factory hog farms. In 1995, for instance, there were only uh, well, only 30 percent of Hogs were grown on a contract type of operation, a Smithfield type factory farm. By 2005, 95% of hogs had been, uh, were grown on factory farms. 95%. 95%. Now, one of the things that led to this and enabled this was when the 1996 farm bill uh, passed. Mm-hmm. And there was pressure to pass that legislation to line up with policies in the World Trade Organization and the North America Free Trade Agreement. And it completely deregulated the, um, the feeds that 
hogs and hog operations and other types of factory farms need. So in, in this case, we're looking at corn and soy. Um, from By 1998, after this deregulation took place, the price of corn had fallen by 50%, the price of soy by 40%. This meant that the way that hogs could be grown uh, could change because in the past, because hogs needed all of these grains, uh, diversified farmers would grow their own grains. It was cheaper for them to produce their own feed for hogs. But after these feeds became widely available at very cheap prices, it really enabled the industry to begin to grow and to have these huge hog operations, it really restructured the meat industry. And this was because the, um, the government's role in supply management, which was a very common sense role that uh, ensured that there was an overproduction of crops, uh, when that was eliminated, it just it changed animal uh, agriculture. Yeah, completely. And I mean, your chapters, they're so densely packed with information. I'm just going to pass, just quickly comment on them. But your whole, your chapters about NAFTA and the Clinton administration and the the World Trade Organization were such an eye opener to me because being a good liberal, um, I thought the North American Free Trade Agreement was a great idea. You know, let's bring everybody into the fold. But as you point out, um, it's actually had the opposite effect on farmers, say, in Mexico or in Mexico in Central America because it's, um, or not Central America, but, but in Mexico, because it's, it's allowed our companies to go in there, displace their workers, displace their farmers, and bring our own operation in without actually bringing money or jobs or anything else that would really be valuable to those communities. So that was but kind I, of like a shocker. Yeah, well, you know, I think the real irony is that, well, Mexico's um, government also wanted to get in line with the, uh, with NAFTA, and so they changed many of the land ownership laws that allowed peasant farmers to uh, grow on uh, these communally owned properties. Oh. And once NAFTA um, came into existence and these laws were changed, uh, the peasant farmers were pushed off the farm and into urban areas uh, around Mexico City, Huge displacement. Uh, U.S. Um, commodities um, flooded the Mexican market, and it impoverished all of these um, peasant farmers who, since that time, have been coming over the borders right. to work in the United States. <laughs> in and our we factories. never hear about this. We never hear why there are so many migrant workers coming from Mexico into the United States. So I think that's one of the real ironies. Yeah, it's it's a well, it's a fantastic story. I mean, it's it's almost you know, truth is always is stranger than fiction. Yeah. I mean, you can't. <laughs> um, but I want to just push on quickly because we're going to have to take a break in a second. But you give a really good explanation of um, the history of the Hassett Plan and food safety and how the Jack in the Box scandal in the 1990s, um, you know, sort of galvanized this whole new uh, initiative towards um, standardizing food safety rules, not uh, rules, not only in the United States but sort of globally. And Hassett, which you know, have been in the food industry for quite a while, a hazardous analysis and critical control points. I mean, that's been touted as the gold standard of of uh, food safety regulations, and um, and it's been promoted all over the world so that we can trade with our trading partners. Of course, not everybody keeps his 
firm a hand on the tiller, perhaps. But, um, you know, how did it? I mean, wh- you don't give a. You're not particularly enthusiastic about HACCP, I guess is what I'm trying to get at here. <laughs> no, well, you know, I, I want to hear I what, that if what it that had, is. Uh, actually, done what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Really look at these hazard points and uh, do something about it. Um, and and have the the government inspectors as well, then it might have been a system that worked. But the real um, impetus behind pushing for HACCP, you know, and a a system like that is only as good as it's implemented, um, was really to allow slaughter line speeds to increase, Mm -hmm. to get the frontline inspectors, the meat inspectors, off of those lines so they weren't slowing down the line when they saw fecal material, and to replace inspection with um, technologies, technologies like food irradiation, which they have not been able to do because consumers don't want it, Mm -hmm. but technologies like in the chicken industry, we see that uh, the, the slaughter lines move exceedingly fast. They now want them to go up to 200 birds uh, per minute, yeah. and they're using uh, washes where they uh, they soak the the, the uh, carcass in trisodium phosphate, and then oftentimes they do it a second time with a weak solution of chlorine. Yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, you know, I don't think Americans want to eat fecal matter, even <laughs> if the bacteria has been killed. Yeah, no, I <laughs> and, uh, and they're also paying more for the water weight that's in these birds, right. and. You know, I'm not wild about eating um, chlorine or trisodium phosphate. I'm sure it won't. Um, it, it's not going to kill you immediately, but uh, it's 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 not the kind of practice that we should be replacing a real meat inspection system with. I couldn't agree with you more. So we're going to um, take a short break, and we'll be right back with Winona Howder from the Food and Water Watch. This is Straight No Chaser. Stay tuned for more. It's going to be great. You're listening to It Ain't Hard to Tell by the California Honey Drops on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Please don't say you love me when you do how you do. Please don't say you care. Girl, I know you've been untrue. Well, it ain't hard to tell. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different, too. Go deeper. Cane5.com We're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the phone with me today is Winona Howder, the uh, Executive Director of Food and Water Watch, one of our most important consumer advocacy programs uh, or organizations in the country. Um, Winona, I'm going to like push right on. I wanted to talk a little bit about Elizabeth Hagen and Hemp, but we just don't have time. Um, we'll do that another time because I've, I've actually done a couple programs about uh, with Amanda Hitt from GAP, Government Accountability Project. Oh, yes. about Yeah, she's fantastic. I love her. She's one of my favorite guests. And we've talked a lot about like the new regulations around poultry inspection, which are, I mean, they're not regulations. So anyway, right. but let's talk a little bit more about sort of the economics of the meat industry, because this is something that I think is really 
sort of key to understanding and also um, key to recognizing just how convoluted and tangled a web this is in terms of trying to dismantle or change um, our industrialized meat system. And you and I can debate the pros and cons of that another time. But I put I pulled this off the American Meat Institute website, um, and I think I sent it to you also. That um, sort of how many workers are employed, how much what the what the sector of the economy that it represents, and I'm going to read some of the more um, incredible uh, statistics here. The meat industry, um, through its di- production and distribution linkages, um, it has an impact on all 509 sectors of the U.S. economy, and that's you know I guess that's like energy, it's food grain, you know grains, et cetera, et cetera, it's commodities. Um, Companies involved in meat production, along with their suppliers, distributors, retailers, and ancillary industries, employ 6.2 million people in the U.S. with jobs that total $200 billion in wages. And finally, um, just to get off the statistic thing here, the ripple effect of the meat and poultry industry's economic uh, you know, supply chain generates $864 billion annually to the U.S. economy, or roughly 6% of the entire GDP. So, Winona, my question question to you is, um, you know, how do we roll that back? How do we not have a really negative impact on workers, on farmers and ranchers, um, and at the same time, uh, you know, create a system that uh, is better for animals, better for, for consumers, and, and better for the planet? Well, you know, I think we have to look at where all of those profits in the meat industry go when you have very large companies that are located far away from where uh, the animals are being produced or where the consumers are. And let's look at, at the, the, the rural economy. One of the things that's happened to the rural economy in this country and why it's suffering and why people really have been forced to move into urban areas to work and why the family farm is disappearing is because of the concentration that makes it impossible for these uh, farmers to make a living. And, you know, the Obama administration had promised to do something about uh, the lack of a market for animals. Um, ranchers testified at hearings that uh, they sponsored about how the concentration in, in the industry pushed down the, the price of um, animals like, well, like beef production. Sure because there's no competitive pressure to bid it up. And in many cases, only one or sometimes two of the major beef packers will uh, attend a feedlot auction, and sometimes only one buyer actually bids. Mm -hmm. So I'm using this as an example, obviously. But nearly three out of five feedlots uh, sell auction cattle to a single beef packer, which keeps the prices very low. And we know from USDA Commission studies that the concentration drives down uh, the price that animal producers receive and that they've fallen steadily over the past two decades. Meat packers also supply their slaughterhouses with a, uh, a combination of cattle they buy at the auction and those that they already own and others that they've secured with contracts with feedlots or producers. And these contracts are drawn up by the meat packers. You know, they're, they're called captive supply arrangements. Mm-hmm. And they um, are uh, kind of a serfdom for these, um, and for the, well, in this case, we're talking about beef, for these beef producers, um, because they agree to a lower price because 
they can't get a fair price at the auction and they're afraid that there won't be a market. So my point in going through some of the details is the way that the meat industry is organized doesn't benefit the people who produce the animals or even um, make the healthiest and best product for consumers. It benefits these companies. Well, you know, let's look at the largest meat company in the world, Cargo? JBS. Oh, which JBS, is yeah. Brazilian, and they are the second largest meat company in the U.S. Mm-hmm. All of those profits go off to Brazil. Meanwhile, the, um, the way that the meat industry has changed the workers who work in these slaughter facilities, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the large numbers, they're not making a livable wage. And in many cases, they're those um, immigrants that we were talking about earlier from Mexico who've been driven over the border and who will work for uh, a low wage and who can be taken advantage of. So I think we need to re evaluate the meat system, reorganize it, and make it benefit the rural areas where animals are produced. Mm-hmm. And um, also, this will benefit consumers who don't want to eat this meat that is... Um, oh, look at a hamburger as an example. When you eat a hamburger, it may be from uh, five different countries and, yep. a, you know, a, a <coughs> 50 different cows or more because it's ground in these uh, processing facilities that are not necessarily using the best practices. And it's also done away with all of those good butcher jobs that used to be there. So actually the way the the meat industry has concentrated, and, you know, they, they say that it's for efficiency, but the efficiency, we have to ask for whom? Efficiency to the company that really profits from it, not from the people who produce it, not from the workers who process it, and and not for the consumers who eat it. I think that's true, but I also think that um, to a certain extent, um, you know, meat is very cheap in this country. I mean, commoditized uh, meat products, whatever they are, whether it's ground beef or tr- chicken or whatever, it's really cheap compared to, in other words, it's probably, it's lower than the cost of production, I think, in general, right? Well, so, it is, but, you know, that's not a very good system where a no. food item is produced below the cost of production. And the other question that we have to ask, and I'm sure this is uh, controversial, do we need to eat as much meat as is eaten? typically, because um, eating large amounts of meat can have a, an adverse effect on people's health, sure. uh, from heart disease and too many calories. And so, you know, maybe we need to look at a more sensible diet altogether, and uh, that, a diet that's not as heavy on processed foods, uh, oh, where well, there's less meat eaten, yeah. and there are more fresh grains and vegetables replace um, some of those food items. Well, I, I, I certainly would uh, never disagree with you there, but I think just given the realities of, of what our you know food system has delivered to us, what we asked for as consumers, which was we, I mean, whether we asked for it or didn't ask for it is sort of behind the point. But the, but the, 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 the impact is is that we have a very cheap food supply in this country, and consumers are used to spending next to nothing of their annual budget on food. I mean, compared to other countries, we spend a fraction, right? It's like four to six percent of well, our no, annual no, no. income let's, here. Let's argue about that statistic. <laughs> and, uh, okay. Uh, now the USDA says nine percent. 
but they say 9% of disposable income. So let's look at what they count as disposable income. They count all pension benefits, all health care benefits, women, infant, and children's programs, all food stamps, and they uh, average everybody's salary in the U.S., and that's 9%. Now, I like um, to look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, as a comparison. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says that uh, the bottom 40% of Americans, who we probably should be most concerned about, spend about 34% of their income on uh, food items. Mm -hmm. And when you look over the last 10 years, each year the uh, food has cost 3% more. So 3% each year. And um, since the recession, the um, companies, the big processing companies, did lower their prices a little, but they sneakily shrank the size of packages. So, and I think you could ask most consumers, are, are food prices going up? And anyone who shops will tell you yes. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen a big jump in prices. And part of that, I have to say, and we didn't even get to this, and unfortunately, we have to wrap this up, Winona, but um, you're coming back. Um, okay. We're talking more, girl. Um, but one of the things that we have not mentioned is the impact of climate change on food prices. Because, yes. of course, as most people know, you know, the Midwest and the South uh, have just have experienced incredible periods of drought over the last decade. And that has raised... Um, you know, with the pressure from ethanol, et cetera, and the, the pressure on these feed grains for uh, for our livestock system has, um, you know, gone way, way up. And that has raised the prices of just about everything uh, that uses any of these products in its components. So, um, but Winona, I just, unfortunately, we do have to stop, but I, I want to, um, we didn't even get to the rest of my questions. Um, <laughs> but we will give you a moment, please, to tell people where you're going to be if you are um, doing any events around Foodopoly or any events at all. We didn't talk about the effect of the sequestration on water. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, tell us if you have like, you know, give us the website for Foodopoly and also oh. if you're going to be giving any readings or talks. Okay, well, I am going all over the country with Foodopoly and the yeah. best place to see where I am is to go to the book's website, foodopoly.org. I'd also encourage people to go to the Food and Water Watch website at foodandwaterwatch.org, mm-hmm. and you can get Foodopoly at your local independent bookstore yes. or, of course, through uh, Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. So, Winona, thank you once again for joining me today on the program. And um, like I said, you'll be back. Okay, I'd love to. Thank you very much. And next week, my friends, um, Peter Pringle, the wonderful author... is and is he is the editor of the companion book to the um, to the very popular new uh, documentary A Place at the Table. Um, there is a book companion to the movie. Peter Pringle is the editor of it, and he's a wonderful interview. And he was behind, he was in behind the book version of Food Inc. And he was on this program several years ago with the murder of Nikolai Vavilov which was a really interesting investigation into um, seed saving and hybridization of plants. So um, come back next week, and thanks so much to my sponsor for today, and thanks to my engineer, Jack. See you next week, folks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.